0: 10 good evening to all of you. We continue with our series of satsangs. Many people already got a bit tired and they asked me, do you continue with Jesus? Do you continue with Jesus? Um, It's not my fault that the Gospel of Luke is so extremely long. Uh, It's true. This uh, series of uh, satsangs has started last year. We had an interruption of three months in the summer, and it still continues. And um, I might uh, interrupt it now. I'm going to not perhaps uh, stop this series for this month because I have one month and 10 more days to do this series, and I wouldn't want to start anything new. However, if you have any uh, subject, which is utterly important for you and so on, you can write it to our administration and uh, I will try to see, you know, it's not impossible for me one week to do another satsang of another subject. This is part of our great series, uh, resumed for the third time, of studying the words, actions, teachings contained in uh, the life of Jesus, because this is very important from the standpoint of the yogis. Apparently, the yogis from Tibet, at some point, they considered this very important. Then there were uh, political and other considerations which made that the Tibetans were very much afraid of the British Empire uh, 150 years ago, and then uh, they did not want the intervention of Christianity in Tibet because they considered Christianity more like a sort of an instrument of the British Empire that they send first the preachers convert the population and then they come with army and economical power and all that so the Tibetans had a phase in their history when they were a bit reluctant to Christianity but we are told that in history in the old days their yogis were happy about Jesus and his teachings. The yogis from India, they had the highest admiration for Jesus. Again, considering him a sort of a spiritual hero, a sort of a spiritual model. Like if you would be like Swami Shivananda or Shankaracharya or Abhinava or whatever, and if you would push your activity to the maximum, Like, be the most that you can be. Be, push it to the ultimate limit. Almost every one of them realized they would do what Jesus did. They would change the world. They would push the karma of the world. They would do something for the world. And therefore, uh, each one of them said, well, we might eventually be... Like Jesus, because Jesus is like fully enlightened and he's a model and he's an avatar and all those things. So we have seen last time, for example, the incredible story, the story which even today it's hard to fathom, where Jesus out of the blue, out of Akasha, he just materialized tons and tons of bread and fish and whatever else was there so that he fed 5,000 people but 5,000 people means 5,000 men plus the afferent women and children so we can easily say that he fed more than 10,000 people if each one of them ate just uh, 300 grams of food which is not so much then we are talking there about 3 tons of food or something like this Tons of fish, bread... and um, it's inconceivable because you see... Uh, everybody thinks that spirituality goes... until it comes to food and such thing. When people get to Muladhara and the survival instinct kicks in... people say, yeah, but God won't feed you... or something like that. Like, it's okay to believe in God as long as your physical survival is not involved in it. But in the moment when you have to talk about food, you say, well, now I run out of the monastery, I have to go somewhere to find some food, because the monastery has no food, it's bankrupt or something, you know. You would never say, God can take care of that. Because when we look at the spiritual history, very often that's where things stop. Like, okay... The divine consciousness. Has created a sort of karma. A model of existence on this planet. Like when Adam was chased out of paradise. The curse which God gave to him was. With the sweat of your brow. Shall you earn your daily life. Like everybody. Has to work. Those who don't have to work. They have somehow escaped that karma. They have somehow evaded that karma and that's very very rare so when people come to this story of the food as well as a few others then usually there is doubt because in religion again there was a story at a time when Swami Shivananda was bankrupt and the sadhus simply went in the villages around Rishikesh begging for food because they didn't want to put it on the shoulders of Shivananda, like Shivananda has to feed us. They didn't even have chapatis. They didn't even have rice. They had nothing. And then, so nobody stayed, oh, we stay in the ashram and God will feed us. The same miracles had been produced in the Jewish history. But people forget it very quickly, right? Because the Jews lived in the area of Mount Sinai in the desert, For 40 years without any farming or clear source of food. According to what we are being told and showed in some movies, they were eating the manna, which was depicted in the tradition, which is depicted in the tradition as a sort of white crystallized powder on the rocks in the desert. And people were scrapping it with knives on the rocks, and they were eating that powder, and it was enough to maintain them alive for another 24 hours yes it was not falafel and hummus it was not delicious food it was just a stupid powder which probably didn't excite your sense of taste too much and it was not delicious food it was like very austere it was extreme austerity but in that extreme austerity there still existed this feeling that if God wants to keep you alive you live you live Somehow, a miracle is happening. Jesus is just resuming this miracle once more. He doesn't do it all the three years every day. Theoretically, there could have been that every day at 11 o'clock, Jesus would have said, Food time, everybody. Another three tons of fish and bread or whatever. You know, like, don't, you don't even need to farm. Every day at 11 o'clock, come to Jesus. And Jesus, if he can materialize it today, and he did it about two, three times as we are seeing here, then he can do it every day. What's the problem of doing it again and again and again and again? That's why this sort of miraculous intervention is touching something very deep. Because very often people say we could believe in God, we could do something spiritual, but... Uh, we know we have to eat we have to eat man is cursed to work for being able to eat and in this situation Jesus is actually breaking this most fundamental blockage which gives to to people this fear of tomorrow this fear of not having food and so on in a similar way this American woman called Peace Pilgrim She did the same thing. She said, I'm not going to buy myself food. I'm not going to produce or anything. If people feed me, I will eat. If people don't feed me, I will fast. I will stay hungry. And she confessed that in 40 years, she was hungry only in the first day or two when people didn't know her. As soon as people heard that there is such a weird woman in their neighborhood, they started feeding her and giving her house. No? So she said, I completely surrendered and I said, I'll live like the birds of the sky. And then because people have compassion, I had food every single day of my life. I had a shelter, a roof over my head every single day of my life. So in this way, she tried exactly this thing. The same was done in a slightly different way by Francis of Assisi, who was obsessed with this saying of Jesus who said, look at the birds of the sky, that God feeds them anyway. Look at the lilies in the fields, that God is making them dressed up more beautiful than King Solomon in his glory. And therefore, it's like, why do you bother about farming and weaving and doing things, when God would feed you anyway? But this kind of surrender, which you see in the case of the breatharians, these people living with light and others... This kind of uh, surrender, it's very difficult, very basic. And here Jesus has addressed it. And then, he, after he collected carefully the leftovers, which is somewhat meaningful, we continue with a totally different episode. It says, once when Jesus was praying in private. So it can be two days later, 20 days later. We don't. It's another episode. Once when Jesus was praying in private. He was praying in private. So even Jesus was praying in private. You'd expect that if Jesus is the Son of God, and if Jesus is God, and he says this thing about himself, and if he is not just a crazy schizophrenic who got it all wrong, then, what need does he have to pray? Like for him, the spiritual evolution is over. There is no spiritual practice at this level. There is no spiritual practice to get what? But it's not true. Because the physical body, the etherical body, the chakras, they have to be infused with energy in some way. Especially the lower sub-levels, They have their limitations. And thus, even Jesus was doing some things in private. Not completely in private in this situation, because it says, and his disciples were with him. It is presented sometimes, like this episode happened, after Jesus sent the people in the villages in the winter, as it had just happened. Remember, we are just after that winter. And then in the spring, the crowds came back to him. And Jesus said, now that you've been and in interfering with people, who do people say I am? Either Jesus is on Svadhisthana, and he cares about what people think about him, or probably being more of a Buddha, he doesn't give a rat's ass about what people think he is, if the people think he is nice or not. He couldn't care less about that but actually that makes sense from the standpoint of his mission he knows he has a mission and then he is kind of probing he's taking the temperature of the Jewish society of his time saying are they boiling or not yet did they reach boiling point or not yet what's happening around here and his ears and eyes are his disciples so he's asking them simply who do the crowds say I am like he raised dead he fed 5,000 people he healed lepers and blinds his disciples have been in the villages and his disciples have been healing people and so on so it's like there is a fuss there is obviously a reputation so he says who do the crowds say I am Again, he is not just zvadistanistically curious to find out what people think about him. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. In the Bible, this is a modern translation what I am reading you here, The expression of this is very vague which says like how could he be John the Baptist? John the Baptist had just died a few months ago that King Herod had killed him. He was assassinated. He was beheaded. Like if you are beheaded six months ago a mature person cannot be John the Baptist unless God performed an incomprehensible miracle and put his head back and glued it with some super glue, you know, and sent him back into the society. Like That's a little bit dumb and extreme. Elijah. Elijah was an old prophet. That's possible. And in the Bible, when it says one of the old prophets or Elijah, this is one of the places and it's not the only one. There are about three, four places in the Gospels where we are telling, where Jesus or the people around tell things which sound very much like reincarnation. We know that in many of the Jewish esoteric traditions, like in the book of the Zohar and others, reincarnation is openly mentioned like a possibility. And therefore, the idea was not completely, completely alien or wild that Elijah could have been reborn and actually this Elijah reborn was Jesus or something like that so people had the right to speculate people are going around and saying well this guy is too big he must be somebody famous you know it's like this is not just a small guy with a, a sort of oratorical sense this is not just a convincing preacher a man who raises the dead and calms the storms, it's something which is definitely out of the common. So, um, people honestly render, and this rendering shows, it's one of the places where we see that we don't know how the Christianity got it, or why they got it in such a skewed and peculiar way, because in the Hermetic tradition, as well as in the Jewish tradition. I'm talking about the old traditions. I'm not talking about Islam, which came 700 years later. I'm talking still about old and older days. Reincarnation was definitely preserved as a possibility that it could be. And the language is in such a way that people would say, people think you are Elijah reborn or one of the prophets from the old days reborn but what about you he asked who do you say I am why Jesus does that he wants in a certain way maybe to verify that they are blessed in some way because he chose them he he likes to push the envelope He's a, he has all his life been a provocative kind of person who went there and made people. He even said it, you know, when I came to the earth, people have to separate into black and white, who's with me and who is not with me. It's as simple as that, you know, like he polarizes. Jesus is a highly polarizing person because he wants people to go to the left of the fence or to the right of the fence But not in the middle. Nobody can stay in the middle. Pretending "Ah, I'm a bit of this. But I'm a bit of that as well. And therefore. He's asking an impossible question. Like you know. Why? Because these people. His disciples. They had seen a few of the major. Things. That had happened. Miracles. Paranormal things. Major. Like the recent multiplication of bread and food for more than 10,000 people and stuff like that. And on the other hand, you know, this is his dream team. He starts having the intuition that when he finishes these people are going to be his continuation. So he's wondering, what do these people see? Are these people saying also that I'm the reincarnation of Elijah or what? And then Peter there is a sort of unofficial theory that um, the 12 apostles somehow, i not we don't know if Jesus ever computed it or if it's just a divine synchronicity that the 12 apostles somehow represent not only the 12 tribes of Israel, but they represent also the 12 astrological signs of the zodiac. For example, Thomas He's called, his nickname, Thomas Didymus, which is the Greek name of the astrological sign of the Gemini. And Thomas is the most tortured by his Gemini mind. He says, I can't believe, I need to see, show me the wound in your palms, you know. He is a bit of a Gemini, a kind of hyper-intellectualized person who needs a lot of reason to... Uh, believe in some things and all that. No, So then, for, according to the same tradition, Peter, who was the, who became the head of the apostles after Jesus <coughs> went out of the physical body, went out of the physical world, better said, <coughs> some people believe that Peter, according to his be- behavior, he was an Arius. Because he had the uh, he was one of the most fiery of the Twelve Apostles, he was a natural born leader and he was always a bit impulsive, you know, like always going first and doing things. So the other apostles did not answer clearly because it's a very difficult question. Who is this guy with whom we are spending our summers together and in the winter we go in his name and heal will uh, demonized people or whatever we do. Who is this guy? Great prophet, a very great prophet. What? And here Peter splashes it. This is in a certain way the upside of it. Generally when you look in history Ariases are some of the very little talented people for spirituality. I know that there are quite a number of Ariases in this room and I don't want to discourage you I just want to call your alarm signal on the fact that when you count the enlightened beings of the last 200 years you hardly find one single Arias among them there is a Swami what was his name? not Niranjanananda Uh, Narayanananda if I remember correctly from India who lived in Rishikesh He moved to Denmark in the hippie years. This Swami Narayanananda had the reputation that he had reached the state of Samadhi and he was an Aries. For the rest, when we look at astrological signs of the 30 most famous names of yogis of the 19th and 20th century, not even one single Aries. Is there a problem? No there is not a problem but there are a lot of factors which describe each and every astrological sign and Ariases do have some incredible qualifications such as intelligence sensitivity in the area of Ajna chakra so potentially there can come some forms of clairvoyance or some forms of exceptional insight there at the same time the Arias is typically blocked on anahata chakra and the arius has the biggest problem in being humble. Humbleness is the biggest trouble of the arius. When you will see an arius that is truly humble, not theatrically, yeah, yeah, I can be humble, sure, look at me. Like for 25 minutes, when you want to demonstrate it, but when shove comes to push or push comes to shove, No, then um, it's not. When you encounter Ariases that are humble, you should raise your hands and say, Hallelujah, I've seen a little miracle. A humble Aries is almost a little miracle. So, because of this, there are many other astrological things. This is the first sign of the zodiac and so on. There are challenges. The verb of the Aries in astrology is I am. And while I am in Kashmiri Shaivism, it means the highest thing in the daily life. I am means me, 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 me. listen to me. I have something to say. I want to show off. I have to shine. I need some attention right now. It's like that's not necessarily the best thing. But you see here Peter is, if he's an Arius indeed, he ransoms the whole Arius population of the world. Because there is the other thing. There is the boldness of the spirit. Like the mind can go where nobody has gone before. Like in Star Trek manifesto, you know. The mind goes. There is this, like I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to set my mind free. I'm not afraid to think some things which are truly great. And the truth is that a mind which is limited is a mind without the Divine. The Divine Mind is a mind which has infinite creativity and no limit. So while the Arias may be challenged and I'm telling you from experience as a spiritual teacher, I've seldom seen Ariases who have gone far perseveringly and usually they most got Challenged by something provoked by something most of you don't know the pupils that we had in this school just two years ago if you'd know the pupils in this school two years ago you'd immediately know the two, three proeminent Ariases in this school as soon as the troubles hit one year ago the Ariases were somehow they lost it they they lost their faith, it was not for them. There was something didn't work for them. They were among the first people to become very bitter and very, you know, like I was not perfect enough, I was not living up to their expectations. Agama was not miraculous or magical enough as they expected. <clears throat> something was there and the idealistic Ariases lost their patience. And now they are probably somewhere in greener pastures, somewhere else on this planet. So, again, each and every astrological sign has its ups and downs. Here I mention Aries because of Peter and because Peter here shows one of the qualities which for sure Jesus loved about him. That... Peter may have been a difficult person. Different movies present Peter as a difficult person. But uh, on the other hand, just to show how far that goes, when Peter was caught by Nero or whoever, by the emperor of Rome, to be punished, Peter did something incomprehensible. He was ashamed that he had betrayed Jesus in the time of Jesus. Because at some time he was very weak and very scared. And then he pushed the envelope as nobody dared to do it. Out of his feeling of repentance and out of his arius thing. The Romans were preparing to crucify him. And he said, are you kidding me? Do you want to do me the honor to kill me like Jesus? He said, I'm a worm compared with Jesus. I don't deserve to die of the same death of Jesus. You have to find something else. And the Romans took the challenge. You know, like the soldiers were barbaric enough to mock some Jewish idiot who wanted a death worse than crucifixion. And they crucified him upside down. They put him upside down. Like the agonizing death was much worse. Death on the cross was bad enough. But Peter was crucified upside down. That's an Arius. That's the Arius spirit. You know, like he simply said, bring it on. You know, he simply pushed it like he indeed was 110%. His fire was... uh, Some people say, couldn't have uh, Peter have been a Leo as well? Because Leos are pretty much like this sometimes as well. He could. He could. I'm not saying no. But look at this episode here. He... And then he says, what about you? Nobody answers, but Peter does. Because he is a Leo, an Arius, something bold anyway. And Peter says, I don't know what other people say, but I say that you are the Messiah of God. In the Jewish religion, in the Jewish culture, this is huge. Huge, Because the Jewish religion, in its popular tenet, it awaits for the Messiah. Here we have a huge moot point, which can damage, which can disturb any people who try to make religious peace, for example, between Jews and Christians. If Peter was a megalomanic idiot, and Jesus was not the Messiah, which actually he said he was so we have a big problem there like he acknowledged uh, later down lower there then uh, we have a huge problem on the side of the Christianity because Jesus was praised by some fools as being the Messiah but he was not so the Jewish priests were right and Jesus is a bit of a crazy prophet ok he had some good parts he did some nice things but he was also a bit too much he thought he was the Messiah or something and then Christianity is built on what? on a guy who was partly deranged because he claimed he was the Messiah and um, there will be no questions during that time. sorry put them down in the Q&A you can ask me the questions Um, and on the other hand if Jesus was the Messiah then the Jewish people who live now in Jerusalem or in Tel Aviv whom are they waiting for? because that train has passed through the railway station already the Messiah has been there and they kind of failed to identify him and on the contrary they said well crucify this idiot you know okay the romans can do the worst they're worst you know we don't care so here if you think logically of course god is not always logical but if you think logically here you have one of the most difficult to swallow things because as long as jesus says i'm from god i am part of god uh, i am uh, an avatar." Uh, i am coming from kashmiri and you cannot understand but i am shiva i am shiva as long as those things you can kind of find a way but if you mention the messiah that that is simply like a finger in the eye you know it's like what are we talking about here so i will not comment this From the standpoint of religious struggle. Because I don't belong to any of those organized religions. And I'm not interested in supporting them or putting them down. I'm simply telling you this. Peter in an act of madness. Like he was probably in his full enthusiasm. He says I say you are the Messiah. Like we've never seen or heard anything even comparable with you. Even what Moses did with doing this and that. Is a child's play compared to what you do on a daily basis, you know? Like, what the heck is this? You must be bigger than Moses. You must be divine nature. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. In another gospel, he says something much more clearly, not in this one And he said, he looks at Peter, you know, and he says, How the heck did that come out of your mouth? You know, it's like, ultimately, according to Jesus, even Peter is Shiva, right? He can see the unity, the oneness of all things. And to say, Here is a human being who has the divine consciousness somewhere, and this human being has said, the Big Bang suddenly splashed it and it will be recorded in the history books, you know, it will be recorded that Peter said this and that's when he told to Peter, you are something very special, you know, like angry as you are, fiery as you are. Apparently, Peter was older than Jesus in age. So he was a bit of a grumpy old man, this Peter. Uh, this Peter, who was a difficult character and so on. Jesus is kind of, you know, how did such a pearl pop out from your lips? You know, it's like, how how did you see it, you know? And then in awe, Jesus says, Peter, truly I tell you, flesh and blood could not have shown you this. Like the intelligence which is born of flesh and blood. The brain is a computer. And the computer could not have told you such a crazy thing. He says, this is something which comes from beyond. From something beyond. And he says, it is only my Father in heaven who could have shown you. Now, like you have said something which people would be afraid even to think. And you said it with loud voice. And he said, this is not coming from your brain. It's not coming from your memory in previous lives. It's not coming from anything linear in this universe. It's something which is from from the top, from outside, from the infinite, from the infinite consciousness. Only from there could such a thing come. So he tells to Peter, you have seen right, and... I still don't understand how could you have the intuition to see this thing. Like, until then, and of course after that for many people, the existence of Jesus was a miracle, was a mystery for many people. Like, who's this guy? Who is this weird guy? No? And suddenly Peter says, he, like, he speaks like under hypnosis. He speaks like in a trance. And he says, you are the Son of God. You are God. Jesus says, my goodness. This was a test and I got my full hands out of this test. Because something came up and this something is like... And he says to you all, I tell you that Peter is right. Peter was right. Peter talked right. Here in the Gospel of Luke, he just simply says... Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Like, there was no time. There was this, you can say, but, you know, what do you, just because you do hocus-pocus and raise uh, people from the grave, does this prove, you know, it's just a huge paranormal ability or something like this, what does this prove? So Jesus allowed people to talk about this only after his own resurrection. After his resurrection, he said, Now you can go and make disciples in the whole world because like he had passed before he had passed his own test, it was like we don't talk about it because there is no argument. This is madness. Plus, that it would have produced the religious turmoil which it did produce in Israel at that time, it would have produced produced it much faster. It would have accelerated the riot which was happening around Jesus so he strictly warned them not to tell like what you heard from Peter maybe the truth but zip it don't talk about it because the time is not there and he said the son of man Jesus uh, calls himself sometimes the son of man the son of man is a sort of a metaphorical thing where he is the man the man the archetypal man, he is the epitome of mankind, because he is God and man, and this is tracing exactly this union, which exists between God and man, through one like Jesus, you can say what about Shankaracharya, Shankaracharya said, I am Brahman, yes, he is one of those who hold this Union. What about Abhinavagupta? Because he said, I'm Shiva and so on. Yes, also he. There are a very few, very few rare number of spirits who have been with one foot in one camp and with the other foot in the other camp, both divine and human at the same time. And those are the people who keep the humanity connected to its source. And he said the son of man, he himself, as archetype of humanity, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It's uh, one of the most sad stories. Ultimately, what results from this when he saw it himself and he knew it was going to happen? It's a typical story of Kali Yuga. Ever since the old Jewish prophets and others, in other religions as well, about two, three, four, five thousand years ago, people started behaving badly with the saints and the prophets. It's not only in Israel, this matters for us, especially in the European culture because Jesus is relevant and all this Jewish, Christian, Islamic culture... has more echo there than it has, for example, in Thailand... where people are not very much aware of some of these um, peculiarities... which exist in in Europe and in the Western Hemisphere. And um, it's a sad story, really. Imagine what would have been if Jesus would have gone to Jerusalem... He would have said, yeah, you know, you know who I am and what I'm doing around here. There are hundreds of witnesses who can speak. If you are waiting a little bit, just watch me. More will come. More will happen, you know, because I'm not going to stop now that I talk to you. All this grace which flows through me will continue and continue and continue. No? And uh, therefore wait. And if you would be a Jewish priest as from those days, as uh, kosher and as uh, strict as you would be you would see in front of you somebody who seems to manifest divine things somebody who speaks morally ethically lovingly spiritually somebody who does not speak badly about the prophets in time like Elijah or Moses he is not dismissing them on the contrary David and the others he is loving them and he is respecting them he seems to be from a flow with them and now he comes and says I came to bring you updates from God it's like it's hooray God is with us He just sent somebody to update us, to keep us fresh, to bring us more faith, to show us some divine works. Fantastic! Like I as a priest, I will say this Jesus is coming and going and after he comes and goes, our religion will be so much stronger because this man has increased the faith of people. and what does it cost us to just politely and respectfully listen to him and if he says love one another we can all say we will try we'll try our best we are sinners, we are imperfect human beings it's sometimes very difficult to love somebody who is mean to you but you know if Jesus brings this and he says it's from God I can at least try It doesn't, it wouldn't, I, when I look from out, somebody who looks from outside, would say, what would it have costed to include Jesus? To keep Jesus included in the whole caboodle, and to say, brother, we are happy for your contribution to all this. People believe more, people are more motivated. Thank you, thank you, thank you, a million times. But it was not to happen. He was rejected. The elders, the chief priests, the teachers, they felt provoked. They felt intimidated. They felt threatened. They felt maybe that they were losing some privileges or something. Either they were not open enough mentally or they were not open enough in their ego. One of the saddest stories came that this man came in the middle of his own nation speaking in his own, in their language being one of them and he was rejected like nah, we don't, this guy and not only, rejected badly rejected so badly that he was taken to the Roman authorities to be murdered, to be crucified it's a very sad story in the end it's a very sad story no. I remember I was seeing to a much different level I was seeing a year ago or something, this Rajneesh movie they made this documentary about Osho Rajneesh and his experience in America, I think wild wild west or whatever they called it no, about the after I have seen it like I'm familiar with the Tantric environment and you know, I was young at the time of Osho when these things happened. I was part of it. I was not, I was not part of Osho's community but I was uh, witnessing the whole story. And when I saw this video a year ago I also thought the same thing. What a sad story. Because when you look there you see that the disciples of Osho were broken hearted they still loved Osho. They couldn't understand what had really happened in the end. What was all this? The people who betrayed Osho, they were trying to paint a fake image that they still loved him. And they had not done actually saw something so very wrong, like Sheila and a few others like her. The people from United States, the Oregon people, we're just a bunch of thick Americans, you know, like really unrefined Bible belt American people. They thought they were right. They thought that the last 20 years, had sh- 30 years, had shown clearly, see, we were right after all. Like they thought they got it right. And the whole thing had been just a. You know? And in the end, you can see in the end of that documentary that nobody understood anything and everybody still believes some weird stuff and the whole thing is just a defeat and from a certain standpoint of course with Jesus it's a defeat which turns into a glory but still it's a defeat you, you, can, uh, you could have asked yourself if you had the magic power to put all the people in Israel in that time in favor of Jesus. And all of them should go to him and say, Hail, Jesus, we've been waiting for you for a long, long time. We don't know if you are Messiah or just a prophet or whatever you are. Teach us. We honor you. Nobody is going to crucify you, be assured of that. So you don't have any sad mission from God or something like this. Stay here. Live for a hundred years and teach us teach about God and from time to time raise people from the grave heal lepers heal the blind you know continue doing your great thing and if you get an itch in your ass and you want to go to Greece or if you want to go to Rome to try your muscle go for God's sake go with our blessing go and represent us and do a lot of wonderful things in this world how would the history of the world have looked in such a situation you know Kali Yuga, unfortunately, is made of a lot of misunderstandings and sad stories. A lot of ego, a lot of unnecessary conflicts, a lot of betrayal, a lot of ego, a lot lot of these things. And this story of Jesus, it already starts getting those tragic aspects. Jesus, knowing that things will go this way, He says, the people who should confirm me, they will not confirm me. They will reject me. And he even says, I will be killed and I will come back after three days. This lucidity is amazing. This shows indeed the clairvoyance of it. Because at this point, Jesus also won the wave. He was like a surfer that caught the biggest wave in the world. He was surfing so good. He had raised the dead. He had sent his students. The whole of the countryside was with him. People knew that he could cast out demons and do things. You know, his reputation was marvelous. And still, he announces, things will turn bitter. Of course, Israel in those days, it was not itself. Because it was under the yoke of the Roman Empire. The Israelis were grumpy for not being free and independent. And they had uh, these political uh, issues to solve. And therefore there was a lot of corruption because half of the Israeli uh, officials, they were nothing but collaborators. They were collaborating with the Roman Empire because if they wouldn't collaborate, they would die. They would be crushed. You know, and in this way the atmosphere was difficult in those days and the coming of Jesus was simply too much and also in Kali Yuga we don't have many stories with happy end when it comes, remember even Milarepa in Tibet Milarepa is a man who stayed in the mountains for 40 years out of which 30 strictly, strictly, strictly alone and somebody poisoned him in case you don't remember milarepa died while being poisoned by a jealous villager like how can a tibetan villager be so jealous on another human being as to feed him with a deadly poison how much of an imbecile do you have to be not to mention how much do you have to be an idiot not to be afraid that this guy may have some paranormal powers for which the poison is just a joke and that he will be able to deal with it. Rasputin dealt with huge amounts of terrible poison. There is a yogi who was measured in the 1950s or 60s by French doctor Therese Bros, who was poisoned with potassium cyanide and it came out in his stool. It went through his stomach just like this. It didn't poison him. No? Like we are talking not about Jesus or Milarepa. We're talking about a poor guy whose name I can't even remember. No? And like how wouldn't you but see how blinded do you have to be by hate? How much the devil must rule over your mind that you would poison Milarepa. Like, you have to be rabid. You have to be a rabid dog. There were people who tried to assassinate Buddha three times. There were three separate attempts of assassination on Buddha himself. Like, Buddha. For God's sake, Buddha, are you crazy? Buddha was one of the most peace promoting persons in this planet, you know? And that was happening in India, in Nepal and if in India and Nepal somebody tries to assassinate Buddha Kali Yuga this is the misery of Kali Yuga this is the time in which we think in which we live and he said to them all and then he decides a certain here he describes a philosophy and um, it's a philosophy which unfortunately often happens in Kali Yuga he said if anyone would come after me and remember he talks in the name of God so the same thing would be I don't know if you follow Guru Nanak in India or Rabhinava Gupta if anyone would come after me would mean somebody going into spirituality big time he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me remember he didn't know anything about crucifixion and he already talks about carrying a cross he says if anyone would come after me he must deny himself deny himself like no ego no ego now then you cannot live for yourself you must surrender to God and take up his cross Daily and follow me. It's frightening, you know, that puts you in another, like, you know, who wants to do spirituality? You come to yoga. We have padahastasana we have Pranavuchara, we have wonderful things in yoga. And then Guru, Guruji Vivekananda Ji came and said, if you really want to go deep in this, you have to deny yourself, take your cross, and walk every day. Uh, oops, let me consider once more if I want to put my life into yoga. You know, because as long as it was not about sacrifice, yoga is uh, cool. But if the price of yoga is that you have to be persecuted for it, then who would want to do it? We had pupils in the school who last year when they saw what happened, They said we cannot live our lives like that. I told them, there is no other way. Ah, they said, that's just your samsara. You believe in that samsara, it's your model. I, that's why I believe in it, because it doesn't come from me. It's a planetary archetypal model. Could you do it in another way? Perhaps, but I have seen a lot of this stuff applied in the 20th century and in the 21st century. So, for me, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. People say, Swamiji, it happens to you because you just happen to have adopted this way of thinking and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Maybe, maybe. That's why I'm speaking so openly about it in front of you because I want you to have your freedom of spirit. Show me. In 20 years, show me your samsara. Show me how it goes with your model of thinking, that maybe you can stay out of this model. And for you, you say, Swamiji, it never happened for me that ever I had to walk on a thorny path like this. I will respect you very much. It means... uh, I for one maybe I'm just hypnotized by some archetypes by some paradigms of the human mind and uh, maybe unwittingly or without realizing it I made a subconscious choice to walk in the footsteps of one like Jesus I cannot say that I'm sorry but it can mean that there are other paradigms And I am very curious to see those paradigms, at least as witnessing them on the face of this earth. For whosoever, and again, Jesus doesn't say it's my view of the universe. He presents these things as cosmic laws, and I keep such an open mind that I'm saying that maybe even the cosmic laws announced by Jesus they represent just a slice of the reality and you, my dear friends, you have another slice of reality. Maybe. I'm very open-minded to see that. Until further notice, Jesus not only says that if you want to come with me you have to deny yourself, which is like a very tough thing to say, but it says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it most of the people that I met in my life they constantly were trying to save their life save their job, save their money save their status quo save the circumstances save a lot of things And when I look now after having witnessed these people for 50 years or more, I see that for most of them it was just a dream. Just a dream and nothing more. Like, maybe I'm hypnotized by Jesus. And again, I'm both happy and open about it. But on the other hand, I can say that what Jesus says here has a very philosophical truth in it. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Because who wants to save his life doesn't say that I am God, I am Shiva, I am eternity. This life doesn't mean anything. I'm just one of those horses of water running like one is dying, another one is taking over. It's a never ending. I'm going to be reborn again, maybe in 300 years. And then again, I'm going to be a horse of God and run, running in the rat race and so on. Nothing is lost ever. Who loses his life? Nobody loses anything. It's only a very egoistic evaluation. Oh, I lost my life. I lost my life. I tried to do this. I, I took care of you for 30 years and now I think I lost my life by taking care of you. You know, like this is egoism. This is the typical mark of ego that I, I want to save my life. All the egoistic people say, I don't want to be like my mother. My mother was a stupid loser. I want to live my life in a different way. But it's just ego, 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 ego. Me, 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 me. Time and again. No, it's all about me. And so on. Whoever wants to save his life, why save your life? Give it to God. And you are going to have another one. And another one. And another one until you become like Shiva, and then you have all of them. You become the universal life. So, where is the problem? You know, like you don't have to save any life, it just comes and goes. And I'm not talking about the primary conservation instinct, I'm talking about people who take decisions by which they want to defend something in their lives which is not really worth defending. And Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life, will lose it. In the end, you are going to find yourself being 85 years old. You have conserved your things, you know. You've defended your territory. You are 85 years old, about to die. That's going to happen anyway. No, if it doesn't happen at 65, it happens at 85. But it happens anyway. And you are empty. And you lost everything. And you haven't done pretty much anything. So, then you are going to say, I lost my life. I wanted to save it. And because I wanted to save it, I lost it. This is this feeling, like, give it! Don't try to save it. Give it! But not foolishly, not absurdly. Give it to God. Give it with a meaning. Give it for something. Which makes sense. But whoever loses his life for me. Will save it. For me. Doesn't necessarily mean for me Jesus here now. Because people did not die during his life. He was the first one to give his life. But he simply means for me. Like for a principle. For this principle of God, of divine consciousness. Give your life for it. Give your life for it means that every morning you wake up at seven o'clock and you stay in the registration office of Agama until you become 84 years old. And people say, What have I done with my life? I have given it. I have lost it for God. I have burned myself like a candle. Any karma yoga. Any self-sacrifice. Like a daily cross. Take a daily cross and do it. That's the way to save it. The way to save it is to give it without having the feeling. Yeah, but I haven't seen Angkor Wat. Yeah, do it without seeing Angkor Wat. Give that to God. Say, God, for you, I'm going to give up seeing Angkor Wat. I'm going to give up seeing Taj Mahal. I'm going to give up doing this, I'm going to give up doing that. I'm just going to give you my life. I'm going to lose it. It appears like you lose it. Believe me, this is one of the tests which people get at the midlife crisis. You don't know, most of you don't know it. Some of you are close to it and about to go into it. In the midlife crisis that's one of the main things which happens. People are questioning, what have I done with my life? And many people fall into this trap of, in the midlife crisis, becoming more selfish. Instead of more selfless, they become more selfish. They say, I'm already 50 years old. I have a few years to live. I haven't seen Angkor Wat. I haven't seen, I want to have some fun. I should." But the purpose of life is not for you to see Angkor Wat and to have fun. That's not why we are born on the face of this earth. People, when they see that life is flowing through their fingers, they feel like tightening up and saying, Oh, whoops, whoops. I question, did I lose my life? I think I lost my life. People say, I did too much sex. I ran too much after the money. I listened too much to my mother or father. I did too much of this. I did too much of that. And consequently, I lost my life. That's not true. It's never lost. The guy who started the Hare Krishna movement, he started it at the age of 65. He worked in the Indian Railroad until 60. And then, at the age of 65, he took a boat to New York, Bhaktivedanta, he took a boat to New York, he sat on the Fifth Avenue with his harmonium, and he started singing Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. It was the 60s, of course. He got the right moment. He went there and he started. Hare Rama, Hare Rama. Hare Krishna became a multi-billion dollar organization without teaching headstand and pranayama and the petals of anahata chakra. And you know, like none of the big things just to sing to Krishna some devotional things as half of India does anyway and it became... He started at 65. Until 65 he was a nobody in India. That fellow. So it's never too late. It's never... You never lost your life. You can always say I lost it but now I'm going to gain it. I'm going to do something beautiful, amazing. Now I'm going to be selfless. Indeed. And he says... The same thing which Matthew renders in his gospel, because he says, Not only whoever loses his life for me will save it. Like, you know, I'm a monk, I'm in a monastery, I'm 70 years old, I'm preparing for death, and like, what have I done? I didn't write books about Jesus, I didn't do lectures, I'm not even the abbot of the monastery. There are a few monks which are very famous and people say they are enlightened. And I am just a loser, a Mr. Nobody and have to wake up every morning at 5.30 and go to the morning mass and chant for Jesus. It's like I lost my life for Jesus. And my mind says, if you would have fucked 10 pretty girls, wouldn't you have had a much more fun life You sit in this monastery and you are not flying through the air. You are not uh, raising the dead. You have never performed a miracle. You don't even see God or feel God. You just pray to God. Isn't that that you lost your life? Jesus wants you to do that. That's one of the tests. He simply says, you have to lose your life for me. Like you have to be able to go Until the absurd limits And still don't give up Still don't give up He says whoever will lose his life for me will save it And then he says that great sentence Which some of you have heard What good is it for a man To gain the whole world And yet lose or forfeit his very soul this is the thing. People are constantly trying to get things. They try to beat the stock exchange. they try to invent, they try to do, they try to see their face on internet, in television, wherever. people are going for name, fame, wealth, beauty, and other things, you know And Jesus says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world? You are Bill Gates. Now he is not even the richest man in the world. You are Bezos. This guy from Amazon has become the richest. Warren Buffett. You are You are one of the giants. And Jesus says, what good is it for you to do this? If and yet lose your soul. Like, did Bill Gates lose his soul? He stole windows? He stole from the operating system of Apple to make the new type of windows? Like, many people say in the world of programming and this that he's a devil, that he's an asshole, that he's a thief, that he is a person without... I don't know. I don't know, and I... Honestly, don't care because I'm not the judge of Bill Gates. But the question is, people are just like that. For most people, Bill Gates is the American dream, you know, that you were Mr. Nobody and you became a personality in so many ways and so wealthy and so this. And Jesus says, what if you do this? Jesus is against the American dream. He talks exactly the opposite. He says, what use is if you gain the whole world and in the end you discover you lost along the way your soul? No, it's like you've got nothing. You said you are going to save your life and you actually lost it. This is one of the things which impressed me from the beginning of my spiritual life. That spiritual people, and Jesus is a very typical one of them, They are topsy-turvy. They are upside down. What everybody else wants, they despise. And what people despise, the spiritual people consider great. It's like Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita. When it is night time for the rest of the world, the yogi is awake. And when the yogi sleeps, the whole world is minding its business. It's like upside down. Completely interested in something else. That's why Ramakrishna asked by Ravi Brahmani, his female guru. He said, Mother, am I crazy? Because the whole world is interested exactly in the opposite of what I am interested. That's why I said, very few people have this madness. I see gurus, teachers in this world and instead of Advising their students to be upside down. To go against the world which Jesus literally says at some point. They advise people to conform. I've seen Indian gurus who advise people to take psychotherapy. To be nice. To get married. To have a couple of kids. I don't have anything against getting married and having kids. I'm the result of a marriage and having kids. So it's not that I'm against it. But people who do spirituality, they have a strange virus in their heads which makes them go against the grain, which makes them want to be against. Those who want to save their lives, they will actually lose it. And those who lose their lives for me, they are the ones who will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world? and yet lose or forfeit his very self. In the wonderful manipuristic book called Shogun by James Clavell, it's a hypothetical, these are not, but it respects the Japanese mentality very, very well. One of the characters in Shogun, they are all of them big feudal lords, and potentially each one of them has the dream that they are going to be the next Shogun of Japan. And one of them says... What will you give, so that you can be Shogun for one day? And the guy says, I would give the lives of everybody in my family, including mine, except my son. So that my son can continue being the next, you know, like, he doesn't want to do it for nothing. One day is too little. So he said, I would give the life of every member of my family, including myself. I would give the life of all my vassals, which means like 10 million people who are living in his provinces. He would kill them all. He would execute them with his own hand just to be shogun one day. Because that's what everybody was dreaming in that environment. Power. Power, power, power. And Jesus says, what's, what's the use? What good is it to gain the whole world to be shogun for a day if in that process you lose your soul? This is This is the human madness. That we are moved by desire, by egoism, and we lose perspective. We are ready to kill the whole of Japan so that you can be shogun for one day. Just for that greatness. There are others who you know, say the same thing. They say it's better to rule in hell than to serve in paradise. There's, I think it's Machiavelli or one of those guys. But Paramahamsa Yogananda who is a yogi. He says exactly the other way around. He says, oh God... Please offer me the most humble place in your kingdom. Like, let me be in the kingdom of God in a corner. I will be the last servant. I'll be sweeping the alleys. Give me the most humble place, but in the kingdom of God. The other guy who is a manipuristic schizophrenic, he says, It's better to rule in hell than to be humbled in paradise. Better to be shogun one day and kill the whole world for it so that you can feel that you have lived a life. This is exactly the opposite of Jesus. This is exactly the conflict between a big manipura and a big ego and what Jesus is offering. Jesus says you better go humble in the kingdom of God. So much better. So much healthier for your soul and thus this statement is i remember i have seen it there is a movie called caligula which is a rather horrendous movie about the cruelty and the madness of the time of caligula and of his personality and it starts exactly with this quote from the gospel it says what is it says what good is it for a man to gain the whole world like Caligula, he was the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time of its greatest expansion, you know, and yet lose your soul in the process. In the end you lost your life, you lost everything. It's empty. And he says something formidable, you no, know, because like He says, see, spirituality is upside down. Spirituality is not what people tell you. You know, the American uh, success or whatever, you know, the American dream. It's not. That's why the Arabs and others, they say that America is the great Satan. Because it pollutes people's minds with ambitions which are materialistic. And it says... George Washington was great. No, he was an asshole. Bill Gates is great. No, he is an asshole also. They are all of them people who go to hell. They are all of them people who lost their soul in the process. And they are preached like they are great. This is Maya. This is a lie in the eyes of people. There is a, a, a Polish thinker. Stanislaw Jerzy Lem, and uh, I I probably don't pronounce his name right, but uh, Stanislaw Lem is uh, having aphorisms, a book of aphorisms, and one of them is absolutely astonishing. It says, In hell, the devil is the good guy. Because that's his kingdom. You cannot go to hell and say, You suck, Satan. Because you are going to boil twice as bad as everybody else as punishment for raising your voice against the boss there. So in hell, everybody says Hail Satan, you are the boss. You know? And therefore, it's the same in Kali Yuga. In Kali Yuga, a lot of wrong people are hailed as being heroes and benefactors and other things like that. And... um, Jesus 2,000 years ago calls the attention on this that humanity is living in some very absurd goals and when he says this he realizes I am standing alone against the whole society everybody wants to save their life and I'm saying you are actually losing it without realizing and who will come and follow me? a handful of idiots handful of crazy people when Jesus got arrested even those handful of people they ran away they ran away like dogs that were beaten you know they couldn't take the pressure they couldn't take that so and that's why he says something very big you know like he realizes as we all realize in spirituality ...that we are preaching something, which is a sort of Robin Hood thing, you know? Like, we are against the whole world. We want something else. We preach something else. We point fingers and we say the world is wrong. Then what? Uh, why are we wondering that journalists write shit about Agama? Because if we are against them anyway... And of course they dislike us. For a journalist from The Guardian or something like this. uh, Agama is just a crazy sect. It's a cult. And we have sex. And we have this. Like, oh my God, you know. It's not. They would hate it. It's normal that it's scary and absurd. Because we tell them you think you are a big journalist. And you are bragging that you have a column in the newspaper. And because you have a column in the newspaper, you think you are the big shit. And we tell you what Jesus said about this. You lost your life. Tough luck. You're an idiot. You know? They don't feel good to hear this, right? They worked hard. They sold their soul. You know? People say that this is absurd. But if you read about Bob Dylan for example Bob Dylan it is recorded on on YouTube there are recordings with him where he says openly to become successful in the Hollywood and in the music industry I literally sold my soul to the devil Bob Dylan acknowledges it and he says everybody in Hollywood does the same if you don't sell your soul to the devil you don't become famous here Says, don't think I'm joking he says I'm literally meaning it and so on it's up to you to find out what do those people do and all that you know? and then Jesus is taking the you know he's taking the flame high he's the torch bearer of this and he says if anyone is ashamed of me and my words you know like would you be going to the reunion of your class? people have been your classmates in high school and say, meanwhile, I have been to a school in Thailand and I discovered Jesus and yoga and I'm telling you, you know, I'm not ashamed of the words of Jesus. Uh, Everybody would say you are nuts. You are part of a cult and you have been brainwashed. And thus, Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, and believe me, many people would be Maybe I haven't sometimes spoken up because I said, if I come up now with Jesus, I'm going to splash my snot over everybody in this room. You know, it's like it's going to spoil everything. So I better shut up and practice some diplomacy. But see, Jesus is not diplomatic at all. That's why he went on a cross. He kind of avoided the diplomacy. And Peter. He said, why don't you crucify me upside down, you know, like, you know, just for me to show you how much I am against you and your shit, you know, it's like your world and your crucifixions and this, of course, it's going to hurt and it's going to kill me. And I'm still despising it and I'm still spitting on it, you know, it's like you don't mean anything. No, it doesn't mean that Peter said, oh, I've been punished so badly. I think I've been a very bad boy. No, Peter said, I've been the salt of the earth and these people are the spawns of devil. And therefore it was normal that they should treat me like shit. I would have been worried if they didn't treat me like shit. Because then things would have been suspicious. No, So it's the same thing. With our example, you know. It's like a lot of negative energy is there. But because we try to teach the yoga authentic. Not gymnastics. Not bullshit. Not psychotherapy substituting yoga. Not like yoga, yoga. The yoga of the chakras and of the yogis. And of the principles of yoga. And therefore Jesus is talking to a very high voice to you. And he says, if anybody... If anyone is ashamed of me and my word, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Like he says, I know I'm right. And I know in the end the justice will be shown. And then unfortunately it's going to be a bit late. No, because he simply says it's just fair. We are going to use the wisdom of mirroring, as the Tibetans call it. You are ashamed with me? I am not speaking for you. It's just fair. You are spitting on me? I am neutral to you. So when the day will come, because metaphorically the day will come for everybody, Jesus is not talking about necessarily about a term in the history of the planet. That can also be right. But everybody has their own meeting with a guardian angel when they die. When you die and leave your body, then you analyze your life. And when you analyze your life, you say, "Uh, Jesus, can you help me? Like, uh, have you been ashamed with me and my words? Then I have nothing to say for you. I will not speak against you, but I will not speak for you as well. I'm just going to be neutral and watch you. Managing your way. No, you've been ashamed with me. So he says, if he is ashamed with me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Here, there is a bit of a tone in Jesus which is fair and this is a bit of Jewish justice. Like suddenly... There is not this hippie forgiveness, you know? Oh, if they fuck us in the ass, we'll forgive them. If if they steal our money, we'll forgive them again. If they get nasty, we'll forgive them again and again. Seventy times seven. But at some point it's over. There is a time when it's over. And that time when it's over is when the line is drawn and the accounts are made. There is such a time, because justice is a divine principle. God also has justice. God is full of love. God is full of forgiveness. But as the Jews notice on Manipura, from the time of Moses and others, there is also this righteous part of God, which is about justice. So Jesus says, it's nothing else but Jewish justice that if you spit in my direction, I'm not going to kiss in your direction, you know? It's like it's just fair. Make your choice and when you make choice you have to live with the consequences of those choices. Ultimately, if you missed Jesus and have been ashamed with him and then you discover you go to hell, it's a great lesson because probably the next time, You won't be ashamed with Jesus anymore because your subconscious mind will say, My God, can you remember how badly I fucked up last time when I somehow stayed away and kind of this? And then uh, what a fiasco that was. And that's why Jesus is right. It seems like he lost his mercy. But remember in the divine, there is a fine line And justice must also exist. It's not for nothing. The wisdom of Jesus is to know where one stops and where the other one starts. Where is the limit between those? And that's why he says, you know what? I make you a sweet deal. If you are ashamed with me, I agree to be neutral about you. Like I will also be ashamed about you. You will not hear a word from me for you. The angels say, Lord Jesus, by the way, we have here a guy who might have been in your area of interest. And Jesus says, I don't know. Never seen him. Never know. Like I have nothing to say for this guy. It's a big bummer. It's a big bummer. And therefore, he is right. You know, like human beings from the standpoint of their soul... They have to make a choice. Even I in Agama, I'm incomparably a grain of dust small compared to Jesus in terms of value and all these things. You know, I don't walk on water. I don't. I'm I'm nobody. You know. And even I feel in Agama. You know, you want to be in Agama, declare your loyalty to Agama. You don't want to be in Agama, farewell. Go and be happy and have a good life and live your life. You know, it's as simple as that. I don't want anything but this, you want, you know, you are ashamed with Agama, you are ashamed with me, fine, I won't see you again for a million years, in a million years we're going to talk again about what the consequences of these have been, you know, it's as simple as that. So that's why. And he assures them, he tells them an amazing thing in the end of this paragraph, which will be the end of what I say here. He says, I tell you the truth. This is a Jewish formulation. Indeed, truly, 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 I tell you. You know, like sometimes prophets from the old Israel, they felt like emphasizing, like now there comes something really big, and this is the truth, truth, I tell you, you know. Like then before you are not, you are lying? Was that ju- that a jest? No, I was talking the truth before as well, but now comes a strong one and I want you to this is not a drill. This is not a joke. Truly I tell you, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here, so some who are standing there in front of him will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. He basically tells them clearly some of the people who are now in this audience are going to reach the state of enlightenment before the death of their physical body. He puts it the other way around. He says, truly, I promise you I can see it. This is like, take it to the bank. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see They will taste death but not before they see the Kingdom of God. So, He implicitly promised, you know, like, I'm not talking bullshit. This is the truth of God. Those who will have the power to stay with it, aligned with it, will see if I'm a liar or not. They will taste the Kingdom of God in this life, in this body. Now, it's not just vague promises this is the kind you see in this one as well Jesus develops this thing which I tell you I had spiritual teachers in my life from different directions some of them were great spiritual teachers some of them were interesting spiritual teachers strong, good And from all of them I have seen this. Each and every one of them, in their soul, was a Robin Hood. None of them was a conformist. None of them wanted to play uh, political correct games. None of them. They all had a great contempt. Exactly as you read in the books. There was the first Christian ascetic who was living south of Cairo in the desert of Egypt. He was called Athanasius. And Athanasius was living an incredible life of austerity. For example, he had dug his own grave in the desert and he was living in that hole. And people said, what are you doing there? And what's that, a grave? Yes, my grave. Like, why are you staying in your grave? Like, you have a life to live until you die. And he said the only sure thing is death which is coming hundred percent. So I'm prepared, I prepared already, I'm waiting for it, you know. And then somebody after years, you know, people he was so controversial, you know, people said you can't he's crazy and all that. And somebody came and told him, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. Like, like people think you are crazy, you are abnormal, you are you know, the whole world is against you. And Athanasius said, go back to the city and tell them that I am also against them. I against the world, you know. The world is fucked up, and I think something different. Athanasius was not alone. Maybe then, physically speaking. But there is a number of people on the face of this earth who are exactly like this. Like, they get to the conclusion eventually that if you want to save your life, you'll lose it and only when you lose it for the right cause then you are going to save it and this and, and continuing with all the other things which i said there that's why here jesus shows himself to be this counterstrike type you know he's against he says the world is in kali yuga it's profoundly wrong i and a few people we have this mystical madness we see the things as they should be And unfortunately, we know that the world will not like us. The world does like them, right? In Europe, there are millions, hundreds of millions of people who pretend they are Christian. And if you tell something bad about Jesus or something, they would hang you. They would, you know, they would get angry, like they pretend that they care about it. But they care, but they never cross a certain line. They are still all of them. Bourgeois, conformistic... They want to have to gain the world. Most of them, they don't care a bit if they lie or cheat or whatever they do. And if they lose their soul, they are ready to sell their own mother down the drain. They could not care. They would swear false oaths. They would do whatever. But of course, in a certain way, they say, we love Jesus. It's funny. Because the world, in an archetypal, deep way, Knows that Jesus is right. You cannot not be impressed with Jesus when Jesus is so cutting edge. But at the same time, many people say, Yeah, yeah, I like him, but I cannot be like him. I am, you know, it's like he, he's God, you know, we are just sinners. People defend themselves by saying, We are just sinners, what can we do? No, 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 no and then they don't go there but their spirit is fascinated with Jesus precisely because this because Jesus has this extreme measure of things i think it is enough for tonight thank you all for joining tonight remember this is a satsang whenever you have questions you write them down you come to questions and answers or other sessions where you can have your questions I'm very happy to answer questions, but I never want to lose my continuity. I want to speak freely in the satsang, so that I express directly some of these states of consciousness. With this, we have finished for tonight. Again, if you feel that until the end of August you have a big emergency or something for a subject in the satsang, make it known to me via our administration people, And as I told them, it's not impossible for me to interrupt uh, Luke for a week or two or three and speak about something else, especially if it's very pertinent and if it belongs now and if it's a topic that people need to hear about. But uh, I have pledged myself to speak about the things of Jesus and lo, it has taken a year and a half already and uh, I'm continuing with it. I don't have any problem with that. I mean, I love Jesus and his uh, Robin Hood message, you know. I love this Robin Hood thing. I love because I myself don't feel okay about the world. I am on the same page as these crazy people have been. And that's why, for me, it's just a wonderful way of preaching a message which is perennial and which is coming from the highest levels of consciousness. Again once more, with this we have finished. Thank you for resisting for all this. I'll see you in the next days and weeks here in the activities in Adana. With this we have finished.